Welcome to Stories from A to Z with Mona P. I'm your host, Mona Pasanoff. Today's guest is Sang Jin Park. I first met Sang when he and his wife Carrie came on vacation last summer up at the Hiawatha Sportsman's Club with their five children. I had been working to launch my podcast, but was feeling nervous about releasing it. Both Sang and Carrie listened to my fears and helped move me forward with their positive encouragement to go for it. Thank you, Sang and Carrie. At the same time, I learned about their life adventures of fostering and adopting two children to add to their two biological, plus another biological who arrived between the two adopted ones. Sang shares what it was like to foster and adopt his nephew, Anthony, foster and adopt Dylan, and how sibling squabbling can be overwhelming for him. This is an episode that anyone who has raised children or been close to kids in their lives will surely find something to relate to. No one ever said parenting was easy. There's also a little bit about culture here, and I think that can pique your interest, and it may follow up with a part two for saying, if you haven't had a chance to check out my stories from A to Z Facebook page, you may want to. There's photos of Sang, Carrie, and their five kids. Hi, Sang. Welcome to my podcast. Hi, Mona. It's so great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where do you live now? And how did you wind up in Michigan? Okay. Well, as you know, I'm not originally from Michigan. I was born in Korea, South Korea, Seoul, the capital city. Uh, moved to the United States. My father divorced my mother at a very, when I was very young. Took me and my brother, who was a year and a half older than me, and went, arrived in New York, Long Island specifically. Lived out on Long Island for a year with my uncle. Then my dad kind of established himself as far as operating a store. Moved us out into the city in Queens from elementary school years till about the junior high school years. We lived in Queens and just moved around a little bit. My dad, subsequently, he got remarried several times during that period and then graduated high school from Sachem High School out on Long Island, New York. Went to college up in Albany State University, learned how to row and did a lot of athletic things out there. And after college, moved back home. There was a little bit of traveling in between all that. Tried to find work, tried to attend grad school, neither of which really panned out at that time. And got my first full-time job as a in the computer industry in about the late late 90s. Excuse me, what did you go to school for? English literature, European literature to be exact. I read a lot of the Cavalier poets and Shakespeare, you know, stuff that I really, I enjoyed, but at the same time, it, was, it wasn't the easiest subject, but couldn't do anything with that degree. So I went into IT when I had the first, you know, invitation by uh, a guy who ran a consulting firm gave me my offer to be for a full-time employee of his. And I, I learned a lot, became a network consultant, uh, worked on site at banks on Long Island. And after the bank that I worked for was 
bought and sold and my company was also acquired by GE Capital ITS. You know, my career kind of really just went in a different direction. For the good though, I mean, financially things were looking a lot better for me at a, you know, in my late 20s. But then the tech bubble burst in 2000, 2001, and then I just had to search for what my next step was going to be. I wasn't getting any job offers within the field that I was in, so I wanted to go back to school. Found the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is an offshoot of Teach for America, which is the umbrella of the Peace Corps. I was accepted into that program. I was a cohort number four really early in the program. I got accepted into the fellowship program. They paid for grads. I worked at a middle school in Brooklyn for about seven years, met my wife. She was a new hire. One of the questions you had asked on the forum was, you know, how did my wife and I meet? How did I know she was the one? I love telling this story. Beginning of every year, all of the new hires and the staff, we all meet in the library and we all introduce ourselves. Uh, so everyone gets to at least attach names to faces and we're all going around this big circle telling everyone, you know, our name, our subject, how many years, anything of interest finally comes to Carrie's turn. And then I just saw her face, just her face with the outline around her face in this illuminated spotlight with this glow about her. And everything else outside of her periphery is of course blurred out, like in a moment where the camera just focuses in on someone's face and everything else in the background becomes blurry. As she's talking, there's no sound. Her mouth is moving, but I don't hear a darn thing. I just see her lips moving. I notice her complexion, the, the radiance in her eyes, and, and then everything goes quiet. She stops talking, and then I kind of shake, and still, I'm still staring at her. And I realized, wow, she's, uh, she's quite the charmer there. Of course, I didn't hear a word she said, but yeah, the rest of the year, of course, was spent pursuing her. I was located on the third floor of the building. That's where my classroom was. She was located in the basement of the building. So I would have to find any and all excuse to go visit her. So anytime a student had to go see her for something, I would say, oh, yeah, I'll go with you. You know, I'd escort him. And this way, I would just kind of just get to get a chance to see what she's doing. And, and you know, I asked if how she's doing and the teachers in New York, we, we always had a good time. We always go out for happy hour and stuff. And she being a new teacher, you need a lot of happy hour. Like happy hour should be every other hour, to be honest, it's pretty demanding work. We got a lot of opportunities to just kind of be in so socially together. So with our friends and we just got to know each other. And, and there was a healthy bit of competitive jousting with other male co-workers of mine. There were a couple of other suitors, to say the least, I guess. So I had to kind of make myself stand out somehow. Eventually, she and I just kind of hung out a little bit more. She expressed more interest in me. And I proposed after a summer, we came out to visit her family, proposed to her on the shores of Lake Michigan. I asked her dad how he did it. And he said, well, I spelled out, will you marry me on the with rocks on the beach. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I'll do that. I planned, you know, it was like sunset and, I, and just goofing around on the beach. We were camp all camping over in Sleeping Bear Dunes. And I said, you know what, you know, I'm going to write you a note on the water. Why don't you go over there, write me a note. Let's just go see what we write each other. So I wrote, will you marry me? 
she comes over and looks at mine and I went over to look at her said something to the effect of yes. <laughs> and I was like, you, you knew this? That is so great. It was meant to be. It was just I guess meant so. to be. I don't think she knew what she was getting into. Or if she did, then she did it despite herself. Why do you We were both that? in our thirties. <laughs> it's too late to go back, I guess. Our kids came pretty quickly thereafter. I mean, Nolan was born in the following year and a couple of years later we had Eleanor and and once Eleanor was born, we were we were pretty much crammed in, in our little Brooklyn apartment. We were living in like six hundred and thirty square feet of space, a tiny little what was considered two bedroom, but the bedrooms were less than 70 square feet each. After Eleanor was born, it got cramped in our apartment really fast because we also had our two hound dogs and Nolan and Eleanor and two of us. So, And it was a three-story walk up. It was uh, not an easy task for Carrie to take the kids and go for a, sh a little shopping trip or errands because she'd have to carry the kids, the strollers. Uh, she'd have to manage those things without me while I was working. We just had to reevaluate what we wanted to do, what we wanted out of life. Living in New York City was not the priority for, for me, having grown up there. And having the support was really what was more important. You know, my dad, he wasn't the most supportive. So we decided to go with the family that was more supportive. And my, uh, my in-laws are amazing. They provided an amazing example for Carrie. And they had already adopted their niece. Carrie's cousin is actually her sister through adoption. And that was Anne-Marie. In her side of the family, adoption was not something that was unfamiliar. And it was within the family, of course. And when my sister was struggling, social services removed Anthony. And we didn't find out about that until a year later, a year after the fact. And that's because Anthony's grandmother reached out to me, just asking if I could do anything and tried to apprise me of the situation. So we just kind of got the ball rolling. I mean, Carrie and I. It didn't take much conversation. I mean, it just felt like, you know, he's family and I felt obligated to do something. And we just did what we could in Michigan to expedite the process. So we got our foster certificate and became a foster family, started fostering kids. While the process of bringing Anthony from New York to Michigan uh, was in the works. It took a while. It wasn't, it wasn't a speedy process for him to. Had you met him? Before we you met with him once, and how we old was he when you met him? He was a oh, he was four, four years old. We got in touch with the foster care system in New York City. They were very encouraging, and they were very hopeful that it would be possible to relocate him to Michigan. But given that it was an out-of-state foster care scenario, it wasn't a quick and easy process. We had to be patient uh, in the process. We just had to do what we were doing, you know, fostering kids here and just being in communication with New York City, making sure that our paperwork was moving along. After about a year, New York City finally said, okay, we're moving forward. Uh, you guys are the best candidates and allowed us to foster him first. We were able to go get him and uh, foster him and then uh, move forward with the adoption paperwork. How old was he when you started to foster him? Still about four and a half, five years old, I guess. He was in foster care for about a year from three to four years old. He was with two different foster families. And then when, you know, we tried to do everything we could just figure out what the process would be. Got in contact with social services here, child protective services and, you know, health and human services. And they helped 
they helped guide us through the process, gave us the advice of becoming licensed as a foster care family to show that we were sincere in our efforts to prove that we were uh, qualified as a family, as a household. So we went through all of the the inspections for our home and family and uh, that's required to become a foster family, which is a little bit more strict than, than I felt they were necessary. But in any case, caution is necessary when you're certifying families to become foster families. So yeah, we, we got him and um, it wasn't too long after that Dylan was eligible for foster care. The, the social worker approached us about Dylan. Originally, it was supposed to be temporary. How old was Dylan was 14 months. Our family grew nearly doubled within a year. We went from three kids to five kids pretty much within 12 months. And it's still been an adjustment. How so? During that time, Carrie was returning to work. Dynamics between siblings was really challenging. Can you speak to that a little bit? Can you give a specific? Yeah, just guiding the kids. I wasn't the best example in the first years, in the first, and I'm still, it's in the family. It's the rivalry between all, between the kids. And my kids have been really mean to one another. And I don't have a lot of patience when it comes to that kind of behavior. And I don't calmly talk to them about it. It's just, uh, it's so hard to talk about because, you know, to be, I need to be a better example. Like I'm trying, I'm just, I'm trying. It's just not been overnight success, you know, with, with how I respond to things that I don't like. I mean, I have these constant reminders. Carrie is unbelievable because, well, one, she's still with me. She's still married to me. That's number one. Number two, every time I lose it, she doesn't ever back down. She does not allow me to live it down. She's tough in that way. And I don't know, I guess there are times when that makes it really rough for me, but at the same time, I get it from her perspective. I'm an adult. I shouldn't get away with that crap. Adults, you don't have the luxury of getting away with acting like a child. As adults, we just need to be able to say, you know, when you're, when you're falling short, it's okay. Just make up for it. Apologize, stand up and recognize that you made a mistake and but that's so hard to do. Like I, I go through that every day almost. I guess that can be encouraging, you know? And it's a process. And my question to you would be, would you ever talk to your students in your class the way that you do with your children at home? Yeah. Yeah. My students in my class, I, you yell at them? I feel like I'm really, no. <laughs> No, I don't yell at them like, oh, you mean reprimanding them and fakes. And, and that's the other part that is so incredibly frustrating is I already, you know, because I've gone through parenting advice, you know, that was given to me. Like, why would you ever treat your children in a way that, you know, puts them down or demeans them? Why would you treat your students better than your own children? That's a question that, I, that I've really been frustrated by because I don't have a clear answer for why I've done that. And there isn't, you know, there isn't. I just have and it's, it's wrong. I should be saving my best for my own kids. They deserve it. Oh, it's, it's, it's truly 
sad that that hasn't been the case, you know, in the past how many years that I've come home and been grumpy and crabby and frustrated with things that happen at school and I get short tempered and I raise my voice at home and yeah. So it's been the reality as far as, you know, shortcomings as a parent. I want to acknowledge that you just shared from your heart, anybody listening will hear that and know, first of all, it's not easy to be a parent, no matter who your child is and whether biological adopted, but your family, like you said earlier, grew exponentially all at once. You went yeah. from half to double. I was a parenting advocate and educator. I did that for my work. You are not alone in your feelings at all. I want to switch gears. There's got to be something funny that happened. What's like a funny anecdote you could share? You know, my kids are, they're, they're really joyful kids, usually. My gosh, there's so many weird and bizarre things that have happened that make people laugh. So we have chickens on our house, right? Carrie's in the kitchen looking out into the yard, and the chickens are in the yard pecking away, and on our red brick path, one of the chickens lay this amazing, perfectly fluffy, you know, soft cone type poop, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Dylan's walking around, he spies the chicken, sees it on the floor, just starts walking over, immediately carries, sees Dylan walking towards that little pile of poop, and she knows exactly what Dylan's going to do. She runs out the front door, yelling, Dylan, no. Dylan walks over. He's toddling over. This is like when he's like a year and a half, a couple of months after we got him. And we're doing our best. You know, he's still under foster care, right? And anything that happens has to be reported, right? He walks over, scoops up that little pile of poop with his little hand, shoves the whole thing in his mouth because it looked like a little ice cream cone. Carrie just gets to him, opens his mouth, sticks her finger in to try and clear out whatever she can. Nothing. He had already swallowed it clean. Amazing, right? We're worried about salmonella. We're worried about poisoning. We, we, we get in touch with the hospital, call emergency, and they just said, well, you know, how's he, how's he looking? How's he responding? Said he looks okay. He's smiling. He's perfectly okay. Well, and they just said, monitor him for a little while. Just see if there's any change in his demeanor and see if he has any stomach cramps or issues. Nothing. Iron gut. We call, we call the social worker, let her know, because we were worried, like, this is negligence or something. Like, we allowed something like this to happen. Nothing. The social worker just laughs about the whole thing and says, is he okay? Does he look good? She's like, yes. And so we found out, you know, Dylan is just, he's pretty much impervious, you know. That's quite the story. I have never heard yeah. of any child eating chicken poop. Yeah. Yeah. Chicken droppings. Oh, it's just, yeah. it's remarkable. How long did you foster him? And when you took him in as a foster, did you know or think you were going to adopt him or not? The social worker said that he was a foster child with the option to adopt. And would we consider doing that? 
because they would certainly place us if we were open to it. And I was like, I think we're open to it, you know, and if not, you know, we will foster him until he gets adopted. And, and so after, after about six months to a year, Aaron and I talked about adopting him. I was like, I think it's the right thing and we should do it. And, and so we decided to do it. It's been a road that we have been on ever since. So what suggestions do you have for someone who might be thinking about expanding their family through fostering or adoption? Just understanding that you have to go into it like with your eyes completely open. There a child, which I didn't understand clearly, like I couldn't recognize when I first met Anthony what kind of a child he was. I just thought, yeah, he's a cute kid. He's a cute kid. I, but I had no idea the impact of his first three years, the care that he received. So knowing that the challenge, even though it's not easy, the growth that you experience as a person, uh, although you may be uncomfortable with it, it's so, it's, it's good. There's no other way to grow other than that way. And I think it's, it's been an, an eye, beyond an eye-opening experience. And I can only continue to pray and hope that things can continue on a positive note. I'm intentionally and purposefully not making this one of those flowery, oh, you know, there's so many great rewards to adoption. The reality is you're, you are raising another individual and that individual is not a person that you had day one interaction with. And they, there are challenges with that. It's gonna be an experience where you're not gonna be constantly praised for. And it, it's frustrating at times when people constantly praise us for having done the fostering and having done the adoption, but I don't feel like I deserve any of that praise because it's simply what the kids needed. And we shouldn't be praising people for doing what kids need. I don't know. I mean, that's not, that's not the kind of example that we want to provide for, you know, families. Like, you know, family is important. Even though I have the most disconnected family, I don't have a close family. You know, I see my, fa I see my own father so rarely. I talk to him maybe once a year, twice a year, and I see him less than that. And my brother, who's only a year and a half older than me, we talk a couple of times a year. Same with my sister. I don't keep in touch with extended family. They don't reach out to me. I don't reach out to them. We really don't keep in touch. I mean, families are growing, and yet at the same time, we don't know each other, you know, since our youth. Some people will think that it's sad. It's just the way my family is versus other examples of extended families that, you know, they put an effort in to keep to, you know, stay in touch and uh, make sure that they're all supportive and, you know, looking out for one another. And, but that's just not been my own family. It's not even an effort on my part to make that right or write those things. But, you know, I still have a strong sense of being responsible for my family, you know, despite the fact that we don't keep in touch, you know. And when I saw, well, you know, just Anthony's situation was a need and maybe thought it was the right one. And even though it hasn't been easy, it's still the right one. People don't be shy just because, you know, because it might be a challenge. You know, I think 
these things, these uh, these moments and opportunities, uh, if you go through and you're approved for the you know for the fostering process and you're able to adopt whatever reservation or hesitation you may have, it really doesn't amount to the impact you can have, you know, and. I don't know. I, I'm still learning that re the relationship is the most important thing because I, you know, I know from my own experience that not having the kind of relationship, it's shown me inversely why it's so important, you know, versus people who've had those relationships and had the, had that example. Cause that's something I, you know, I'm still seeking. I'm still seeking out the kind of relationships that, I've seen um, and but ne never experienced in my own family. So, and I guess that's one of the reasons why it bothers me when my kids bicker so much and are mean to each other. I'm like, that's not the kind of family I wanted. Can you guys be more like the kids that I imagined you were gonna be? I mean, it, it's the uncertainty that that has us working, you know, hard, so that you know there is a certain degree of of assurance that you know you're putting them on a good footing to be adults in this world. And it's so important for me to make sure I'm a better example is all, sure. you know, and not present this image of this uh, patient, calm, understanding teacher. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> why you have your other half, right? Yeah. So tell us what you do to relax or to have fun or what is your outlet? Because I know you do lots of other. When I'm up to it physically, I do enjoy going out in the woods and cut, I cut a lot of firewood just because we use a wood burner. So there are a lot of afternoons and weekends just cutting firewood and also just cutting down trees and that my neighbors need and stuff. Um, just other things, just I like to tinker. I'm like a tinkerer. Uh, I go to the garage and I tinker. I try to fix a lot of things because there's constantly things that are breaking and overuse. And it seems like I, I don't have time for my own interests other than reading which i try to do more of that's a what i like to do to relax too gets me in a nice relaxed state of mind i coach at school coach basketball and i coach this year i'll be coaching assistant coaching with track at the middle school level so i've i've been coaching you know for years which i love really competitive but at the same time i'm not competitive because it's middle school i teach this hit class which is a lot of fun i've got anywhere from three to six ladies that i that have taken to my class and they've really enjoyed it it's it's fun if you're not familiar with high intensity interval training it's just timed moments of intense work and uh rest so but it's continuous for various exercises or movements so i take them through 10 different movements for one set and we have two sets that we go through. It's mostly body weight, you know, like P90X combined with beach body, combined with CrossFit movements, plyometrics, that kind of, those kinds of uh, exercises. Uh, it's stuff that I like to do because, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm, I, I am not a meathead anymore. I'm not about throwing weights around. I'd rather use my body weight and stay mobile, flexible, and strong. I love my group of participants. They're, it's it's always fun. We've expanded to twice a week. I teach that course at a friend's house, 
one day a week and at the gym another day a week. Other than that, you know, just going bicycling with the family when we get a chance and going on walks when we can. We haven't done that too much lately. It's just been odd. It's, you know, the whole COVID-19 has just really disrupted what we normally do. I know that we used to take a lot more walks and bicycle rides together, and, and we'll be doing that again since the weather has, has become much more pleasant up here. I love movies, and my children and I, we, uh, the family just loves to kick back and just watch movies, you know. We do movie marathons of Star Wars all the time because we have the entire collection, so that's like eight hours of just watching all the series, so. Yeah, we're uh, big movie buffs, film buffs, Japanese anime. Those are some of the things. We write occasionally. Oh, what do you write? I don't blog, but it would be just journaling in that way. I've also drafted, but the, none of them are complete. Just various stories that I've been toying around with for years, trying to figure out how to finish a, an Alaskan murder mystery based on loosely based on my experiences uh, working up in Alaska, kind of like a travel log because trying to recapture those moments when I crossed the country a handful of times with different people, just trying to write a memoir, specifically of the late 70s and early 80s years in, in New York City. I don't think it's unique, but I think it just captures a, a voice and a, a tone of you know, just one of the many immigrant experiences of what it's like to be Asian in New York. And I've, I've read a handful of other Asian writers, and I feel like it's something that I need, you know, I, I'd like to just have for my own kids to read when they're older. But I am quickly running out of time because my oldest is getting to be a little older. I'm hoping that by the time he's in his 20s, I'll have something that he can read to make him feel like he kind of knows me intimately just something that my kids can say that i left them that was just me you know things that i've not shared with them yet interesting okay i hope that you can complete that anything else you would like to add before we end mona i hope it's worthy you know i just hope it's worthy we'll see well, i hope so yeah. yeah we'll see we'll see all right, so I'm going to say thank you. I really appreciate your honesty and your integrity with sharing your truth and your feelings. And yeah. if you ever feel like you're at the next step and you want a part two, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, I think if you, um, you know, if you ever want to follow up, yeah. I don't know what kind of story arc you were, you know, that you had in mind and whether or not I fit into that. Cause that's what I was worried. I was concerned that I wouldn't fit into something you had in mind with, you know, the impression that you had about us or me specifically. We can always go back and I can elaborate on other elements like to show you. I mean, cause you know, we could, if we focus on my immigrant experience and, and what that was like, cause I, you know, I definitely skimmed over yeah. you know, details related to that and the impact that had on me. That could actually be a part two where we speak about your immigrant experience and then how much do you bring your background to your family and what do you share mm -hmm. with your kids living in Sturgis, Michigan, which mm -hmm. isn't that diverse 
it's more mixed than not, but it's not like New York City. No, yeah, and you know we've gone, we've already talked about with my, with our own kids, you know, the issue of race, and you know, because they they've experienced some, they've experienced you know name calling and being called out and pointed out as different other kids acting in racist ways just out of ignorance you know no i don't i don't get like i'm not all up in arms about it i think it's it's to be expected it's not to be expected it is it is something that i didn't i'm not surprised by so you know we do talk about those things you know why kids point out differences and and, and their own limited understanding of what it means to be from a different ethnic or cultural group and how they respond to it. What does it say about them? And we have a lot of those conversations, you know, cause it's, it's constant. Every year is a new experience in that way. So yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. kids are definitely more mature in that way though. That means you're setting a good foundation and that's important. Yeah, I think that might be one of the only areas where I'm probably doing a better job. So hard on yourself. Sang, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank you. This was so great, and we will do it again. Well, thanks, Mona. This is better than any therapy session. (laughs) Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I would appreciate your sharing this podcast with all of your friends and all of your family. Everybody you know, spread the word. Get lots of people to listen to Mona's podcast. Yes. Click to follow me on SoundCloud and Instagram and give me a thumbs up on the podcast page or leave a comment. The next episode will be available in two weeks, usually on a Monday. Till next time. This is Stories from A to Z with Mona P.